You're listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. My name is Dr. Richard McKinnon and I'm joined by my co-host Pilar Ortiz. Pilar, how are you doing? I am well and I hear that I might be a little bit better than you. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) I've just returned from Scotland and I've brought some germs with me, so I have some lurgy. I will make it to the end of this. And actually, I'll make it to the end of the day. I need to. But unfortunately, this is a podcast. So you've got this in your ears for the next few minutes. Oh, it's fine. (laughs) It's good. It's good. So we're going to talk uh, today and for the next few episodes about the concept of psychological flexibility. And if you're a regular listener, you'll know that we talked about this before, but way, way back at the very beginning of our podcast journey. think episodes two, three, and four, I think. Uh, that was very early on. <laughs> yeah, very early on. So hopefully we're doing a better job these days, but also um, you develop your own, you know, different perspectives on this concept and you learn from other practitioners and, you know, so I, I've got ways of explaining this and bringing it to life that maybe weren't around uh, when we first started to talk about it. And also we covered off quite a bit in each episode. So what I'd like to do is look at the different aspects of this concept in a little bit more detail over a few more episodes so we can have a bit more of a deep dive and also involve some experts in this space, who I've been interviewing, uh, to give us their perspective and tell us a little bit more about how they put this concept of psychological flexibility into practice in the workplace. And I suppose with a title like uh, uh, psychological flexibility, (laughs) there is all that room to explore within it. So yeah, it makes sense. And it was 50 episodes ago, it was episode three that we tackled it. So yes, uh, that's a long time in podcast years. It is. And it's really interesting that as we said in our 50th episode, they're still some of the most popular episodes in terms of downloads, especially this uh, concept of paying attention to the present moment, which is one that we're going to address again a little bit later on in this series all about Cyclex. So what we're talking about here, uh, a quick recap over this. Maybe this is your first ever episode. Um, maybe you've seen our interviewee's name attached to this and you were interested in it for that reason, which is great. But a quick recap that when we talk about psychological flexibility, what we're really talking about are a set of skills that anybody can develop. So unlike something maybe like IQ or your height, <laughs> it's not something you're really born with. And it's not something innate to you. So the good news is these are skills that we can develop once we know what they are. Um, And to put it really simply, when we put these skills into practice, they help us navigate life's challenges and setbacks in a way that's more effective and more helpful to us. So, So that's very broad. 
But really, it can range from, you know, a difficult conversation at work, uh, a bit of procrastination around a task we find unpleasant, or as I'll elaborate in a moment, all the way through to very significant challenges like uh, depression and anxiety. So these same skills can be useful to us across a whole range of concepts and that's, or, or contexts, I should say. And that's one of the reasons that I find it so useful in my own practice as a psychologist. Here today, we're going to talk about the use of our values. And when we talk about putting psychological flexibility into practice, one important element of that is using our values to guide our behavior rather than a thought or an emotion that's just flashing through our experience. So rather than relying on a part of our inner experience that's telling us, oh, don't do that, or you better say this, we're actually asking ourselves, well, what would I do if I was at my best? Or what would I do if, if all of this wasn't going on? If I didn't feel so anxious or if I didn't feel so annoyed, what would me at my best do? So it frees us up to behave flexibly. So hence the flexible and psychological flexibility and hopefully navigate situations with a bit more skill and get us a result that's more helpful to us in the longer term. Mm. And I'm sure you're going to you're going to cover a lot about um, around values with uh, with uh, Ross, the interviewee. But I, this is something that when we first came across, well, when I first came across the term in doing this podcast, which is great, I get so much free training and free learning <laughs> <laughs> by doing this, uh, this show with you um, is uh, I think that is so important to continuously revisit um, our values and set time aside, especially when we're not in need of going back to them. So, for example, the other day I did an, an exercise from a book. I think it's called Design Your Life. It's a really beautifully illustrated a book. And it, it, the exercise was very similar to this. Is okay, what's important? What do you, you know, how do you want your life to look like? And just in setting down some of those um, things that are important to me and some of those behaviors that I want to be um, showing and, and, and the ways in which I want to be behaving. It helped me later with some conversations also. So I'm not relating it specifically to psychological flexibility, but this thought of knowing what our values are and even writing them down sometimes so we can refer back to them when we are in need of them. I think that's something that that's really helped me. Absolutely. And, and reflecting on what really matters, which mm. is a, a way of talking about values, because as, as you won't be surprised that the, the term values can be off-putting for some people because maybe they've had it rammed down their throats in the workplace. You know, right. our values here are, and of course they see a big disconnect maybe between some behaviors and some stated values. So they can feel a little bit cynical about it, but you're absolutely right. Being clear about our values and, and dedicating some time to clarifying for ourselves what it is that we stand for, what's really meaningful to us and making a note of that, you're doing that with intent and maybe less thinking about what we stand for after the event, maybe when we've behaved in a way that we're less proud of. So taking the time to do this is a really important element of understanding what matters to you, although it's not something that many of us do regularly. And so that's one of the benefits of uh, taking time in, in coaching or training where we use these concepts to give people the space to think about what really matters and to give names to these values so that they can talk about them with other people who are important in their lives, but also label those values so that they can think about how am I going to put this 
into practice. If, you know, my health and well-being or looking after myself is one of my values, fine. But what does that mean at the level of behavior week in, week out, not just when there's a big setback or a big crisis in my life, how am I going to do this as an ongoing activity? Now, why do we look at psychological flexibility uh, to begin with? Why do I uh, find this such a useful way of uh, looking at the world? I mean, first of all, this is a very evidence-based approach to people development. And uh, the research looking at these concepts uh, goes back decades and it continues to grow, which is great because we're able to keep up to date with what uh, researchers are doing in a variety of contexts. And in the workplace, psychological flexibility can be used to inform one-to-one coaching. As we'll hear from Ross, it can be used in training contexts to give groups of people these skills. Uh, I often use it in team development contexts to allow members of a team to look at team interactions and team purpose through a little bit of a different lens. But in my own experience and in the experience of practitioners who shared this with me, people just tend to get this. You know, they can get their head around it. And we use a lot of metaphors. We use a lot of images. It seems to be quite accessible. Now, that's not the same as putting it into practice, but understanding it is something that people can get. And what the evidence tells us about using these skills in the workplace is that it really contributes to our well-being. It contributes positively to our job satisfaction and the quality of our relationships with others in our life and uh, other aspects of the workplace like productivity. So giving people these skills and allowing them to practice them will benefit them in, in a whole range of, of different ways. Now, it stems from the world of therapy. And that doesn't mean uh, we're using it in a psychotherapeutic way, but the skills arose from research done in the world of therapy. And um, what, what it's known as in other contexts is acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. And that, that really reflects some of the most important facets of this uh, acceptance of discomfort, psychological discomfort primarily, and commitment to take helpful action rather than being, uh, in inverted commas, paralyzed by what's going on inside, will take meaningful action to pursue our goals. And the research points to incredible results for people experiencing depression and anxiety, which are traditionally hard to budge, hard to move the needle on for people's experience. And uh, Richard, you said that, um, just going back a bit, that the evidence shows that it supports, because it's a lot of stuff, well-being, job satisfaction, <laughs> quality of relationships and productivity. Mm. Um, in your opinion, I, I mean, I don't know if, it, if it's known why, why do you think this is in, as opposed to maybe other kind of things that we bring into the workplace or that we are get training on? That, that's a really good point. So at its most fundamental by practicing psychological flexibility, we're doing things with intent and we're doing, um, we're, we're engaging with the world internal to us and external to us in a more flexible way rather than automated, automatic responses. And if you think about, and we can all think of these examples, maybe when we've responded to events around us in a way that we're less than proud of, we can, um, display frustration and anger without really intending to or getting caught up 
in those emotions. And of course, that will take us away from our focus, uh, what's most important in that moment. It could damage the relationships of people uh, around us in our immediate vicinity, and it can set us up for habits, uh, behavioral habits that might in the short term feel good, but in the longer term don't benefit us. So a core tenet of this uh, whole area is to try and reduce the energy we put into struggling with our inner experiences, our thoughts and our emotions, our memories, images of the future, and focus more on the here and now so that we're able to engage meaningfully and helpfully with what's going on right now. And if you just think about your experience of life, so much of our time is spent caught up with thoughts. And a lot of the time, those thoughts are super helpful. But also a lot of the time, what's going on inside is not a really helpful representation of the world. And so we get led astray, if you like, away from what we'd like to be and what we'd like to do into ways of behaving that are less helpful to us. And, and those things include procrastinating about meaningful, important activities. It can be acting out against people that are close to us, and it can prevent us from making decisions and taking action that's going to be really beneficial for us in our relationships, in our career, in our education. So I think that goes some way to explaining why you get all of these positive results from the research. It's, it's a lot of bang for your buck, to put it very simply. <laughs> D does that answer? The, yes, yes, the it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what people have done, and, and I've stopped saying what we have done because I didn't contribute to this research <laughs> in any way, but what, what the experts have done is, is translated the acceptance and commitment therapy into something that's sometimes called acceptance and commitment training or acceptance and commitment coaching, where the outcome is what we call psychological flexibility. So that's how I use it. And that's how my colleagues at Work Life Psych use it in the workplace. It's drawn from the world of therapy, but we're not using it for that purpose. So I just wanted to be really clear about that. But it has a great pedigree. It goes back quite a long time and is a very evidence-based uh, intervention or training, however you want to put that. So let's talk a little bit about values before we inter um, introduce Ross. Ross McIntosh, who I interviewed for this, we talk about values and the importance of, of getting clear on those. These are personal qualities. So they're individual. So Pilar, my values could be quite different to your values, but that doesn't <laughs> represent a problem, right? Because they're mine. And one of the conversations I have regularly with coaches is that just because you've got clarity on your values, it's not your mission now to make everyone agree with them. It's just important that you understand what you stand for. And also, there are things we aspire to, we want to live up to, we want more of these qualities, these experiences in our life. So they're not goals. We don't achieve them at any point. We don't put a tick in the box next to them. Goals are achievable by their very nature. It might be uh, completing an educational course. It might be getting a promotion. It might be securing uh, a sales target. They're goals, but we don't want to give up on what we stand for at any point. So that can be a useful reflection for people. Maybe after this episode, you want to think about your values to be clear if it's a value or not, or a goal. Could you one day 
put a tick in the box next to that and say, I've achieved it. We use the metaphor of the compass to, to um, really illustrate how goals are useful to us. A compass gives us a sense of direction, and that's important to be able to use that compass because if we're on a boat and we're using it, uh, it's fine when the sun is out and the sky is clear and we can see the horizon. We don't really need the compass. But when there's a storm, when the sky is covered by clouds, when the sea is really rough, it's important that we're able to see uh, the compass and decipher its meaning so that we can stay on the course that we want to and not be blown off course by what's going on around us. So therefore, the, the compass gives us clarity of direction regardless of what's going on around us. And to put that into very practical terms, that means making decisions that are helpful regardless of what we feel inside and regardless of what people are doing around us or how the environment we find ourselves is uncomfortable or just undesirable. It's not the ideal. So how can we use those values to help direct our next steps? And that, that's really why it is important to understand what we stand for. And it helps us avoid this notion of getting hooked by elements of our inner experience. That's a bit like when you uh, let your emotions really run riot when they tell you what to do or when a particular thought is uh, taking over. And uh, instead of that hooked experience, we think about me at my best. What is it that I would do ideally in this situation? What is it that I can do that's helpful to me? So values are a great start for looking at this whole concept of uh, psychological flexibility. But it's arguable that even if we didn't go any further, it would be beneficial for us to consider, well, what does matter to me in life? Because that allows you to see, well, what doesn't matter? And maybe what am I getting wound up about? So listen, we're going to talk, um, I'm talking to <laughs> Ross, uh, because you weren't there. So this is what I've been uh, working up to Ross McIntosh. Um, great practitioner. He came into the office. So um, we had our, our interview face to face, which is uh, very different to, to how I normally uh, do that. And I'm really glad he did because um, we had a, a fantastic conversation, really, really enjoyable. I first came across him via his podcast, which is called People Soup. And I will be um, linking to that in the show notes. I'd recommend it to everyone who's interested in this entire concept of psychological flexibility, because that's the primary focus. And each short episode is a great exploration of one of the facets uh, of the concept and how it's put into practice. And he really brings it alive with his own life's experience and also a healthy dose of humor. So um, they're very accessible and very enjoyable episodes. Now, we finally met this year, uh, this year being 2019, in June at a conference all about um, this umbrella term, um, contextual behavioral science. And that's where psychological flexibility fits. And so we had the opportunity to have many, many chats, one of which uh, was all about, let's, let's get you on this podcast. I think you could do a fantastic job of bringing this to life, where we go into this in more detail. So he... Uh, told me all about his career, how he got to where he is, how he uses these principles, particularly how he brings it to life in training. And uh, I learned a lot from him. Um, and I, I'm quite open about stealing several of his great ideas for use in my own, in my own work. 
So really, I hope you enjoy this. I hope that uh, listeners um, get a lot from Ross's expertise and his engagement and his humor, um, because he's a, he's a really funny guy and he, he brings it to life. But also, I hope you get in touch with your questions. If you find this useful, or if you've got questions about this somewhat nebulous concept of values, do get in touch. As always, you can drop us a message on Twitter at my pocket psych, or you can send us a longer message via the contact form on the website. That's at worklifepsych.com slash contact. And indeed, I'm going to be putting Ross's contact details in the show notes, and he would definitely welcome your questions or just your feedback about the conversation. If you're interested in learning more about this concept, all I can say today is the next few episodes are going to be a deep dive on it. So we're going to walk through each of the skills in a bit more detail. And as I said, involving several uh, experts in the space to bring it to life. And you can also find out more about what we at Work Life Psych do in this space by visiting the website. And you can find a page all about this at worklifepsych.com forward slash psychological flexibility. And it outlines a little bit more about what the the concept is, how you can train in it, and also links to some episodes of the podcast and some relevant blog posts that we've put together over the years that will go into it in a little bit more detail. So lots of resources out there. For now, Pilar, I think we're done and we can segue into the interview with Ross, unless you've got any questions. I look forward to the interview and I hope listeners enjoy it too. Thanks everyone for listening. So, Ross, delighted to finally get you into the office for a chat. I'm delighted to be in your rather glamorous office <laughs> with some lovely succulents, may I add. <laughs> Very glad this isn't a video recording. It's, uh, it's not glamorous, uh, but there are some succulents. So, listen, um, before we dive into you know, what it is that you do uh, mm-hmm. on a regular basis, could you tell me and the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, how it is you came to be, what you do today? Blimey. I will give a, a fairly, I think this is the fairly short version. Um, tell me if I go on too much. Um, I'm a boy from the northeast of England, near Newcastle. A Northumbrian, if you like. Mm-hmm. Skip forward. I studied many years ago, I studied psychology at the University of Dundee. I went even further north mm-hmm. to study. Loved psychology thought I was going to become a kind of child development specialist. But then I thought, I have to get a job. And that job, first of all, was at the Metro Centre in Tyne and Weir. Okay. But then I went down to London and joined the civil service. As a generalist, I started off in immigration, where I was doing things like, exciting things like marriage interviews. Wow which was like Mr. and Mrs. Did you ever come across Mr. and Mrs. where you interview the couple separately? Separately, and they have to agree on that. You say, well, what colour is your wife's toothbrush? And, but you have to keep the questions new all the time because yeah. they are shared amongst the population. Interesting. Interesting, but not really what I'm here to talk about. No, no, we'll talk about that later. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so civil service, boom, 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 boom. Moved into HR. Quite like that, thought, oh, yeah, I enjoy thinking about developing people, helping people get the best out of their working lives. 
and this was in the home office. Got a couple of promotions, did a master's in human resource management, did all that stuff, then moved to what was the DTI at that point, Department of the Trade and Industry. Mm. It's had many, many different names since. Yeah. One of them, no, I'll tell you that story later. Okay. <laughs> I'm keeping a list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for later. Um, and there I finished up being responsible for senior assessment. So I was developing assessment centers for people to go into those very senior roles, mm. ministerial facing roles. Mm. And really enjoyed that. Really thinking. And I was working, I was contracting some psychologists to work with me. I thought, oh God, I really wish I was doing this stuff. So I left. I thought I could just see my career sort of panning out ahead of me. And I thought, is this it? Mm. HR, HR. I kind of loved it, but I was kind of thinking it felt a bit restrictive creatively, so I thought, let's get out there. So I did. I left, and I went to do the Master's in Organizational Psychology at City. Mm -hmm. I never left, so I'm still at City. It must be five or six years later. Um, working in an area that I didn't really think I'd enter into, but all around psychological well-being and psychological flexibility. And I'm also now back in government as an interim, quite a long-term interim. I'm working in an agency of the Treasury. Mm. Almost full circle. Yeah, but not a civil servant, I'm quite proud to say. And an interesting circle. That's taken yeah. in quite a few activities. Yeah, was that too long? No, I'm not right. at all. I've, I, I will have further questions. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> but if we think about you now as a practitioner... Mm. What does a typical week look like for you? What kinds of activities are you involved in? Oh, gosh. Um, I spend two to three days a week working at this agency in the Treasury. And ordinarily, I'd be looking at team effectiveness, psychological well-being, and psychological flexibility, bringing, bringing interventions, designing interventions to deliver in this, in this agency to increase their efficiency, to help them deliver their corporate plan through the way they behave. Mm. I also, as I say, I'm still at City University of London. Let's give it its full title. Mm. And I work with the venerable Dr. Paul Flaxman, mm -hmm. legend of something called acceptance and commitment therapy, and you're indeed. very familiar with. And I'm fortunate enough to work alongside him, and we are, well, we've been designing, redesigning uh, an intervention that he developed for building psychological well-being in working populations and teams. And we've been going around delivering that, mainly in the uh, public sector, sorry, mainly in the public sector, and we go around training other psychologists in NHS trusts who then go on and deliver it to their staff. So some train-the-trainer. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a much easier way of saying it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's why they pay me the big <laughs> <laughs> And then I do a bit of freelance stuff. So I work with different organizations um, using the same behavioral science, to be honest. Organizations that come across me, there's an organization, organization called AMIA, I did quite a bit of work with, and then mm. Nectar Loyalty. Mm -hmm. Other organizations I can't name, yeah. as I signed a non-disclosure agreement, but you know who they are, but you don't, listeners. 
Hey, write to me. I'll take it to my grave. <laughs> but it sounds really varied. Yes. Yeah, you know, I really is, like. Overarching um, theoretical toolkit, mm. but you're applying it in very different ways with, with different kinds of people. I think what, what floats my boat is applying it in different organizational contexts. Mm. And the most unusual one probably is ballet companies. You know, I saw this when you were sharing, I think you were sharing some photos online. We like to bust a few moves, me, yeah. and, me and my colleague Jamie. Yeah, I was, I was really intrigued. Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah. that? Yeah, um, we, we, we started to talk about this behavioral science with a, with a charity called Dancers Career Development, which is a, an organization that looks at dancers once they are approaching retirement. Because it, it can be quite a short career, mm. a dancer. And it can be really intense and can be competitive, can be full of ups and downs, and it can end really suddenly with an injury. Mm. And what we were noticing is that um, when dancers are injured, they, there's a lot of focus on their physical recovery, but not much on their psychological recovery. Mm. And when they finish their careers, there's not much out there to say, well, what do I do now? Yeah. My purpose was this. So, so it's not through my, Richard, you have witnessed my dance skills and you'll be surprised to hear this, but it's not through my dance skills that we got these gigs. I am stunned. It's through my dear friend and colleague, Jamie, and she was a former principal at the Royal Ballet. Okay. So, so we go around as a nice little double act and share these interventions with, um, Royal Ballet, Scottish Ballet, most of the ballet companies Northern actually. Ballets. Northern Ballet, Rambert. Wow. And you get to see the different organisational cultures as well. Yeah. So it's a privilege and it's exciting and it's really unusual for me to have access to that population. I mean, I, I love this because something that we've, we've tried to talk about on, on the podcast for, for a while now is that the workplace looks hugely different to mm. different people. So often when you read about work, the image is one of people sitting at desks at computers. And of mm. course, workplaces are many and varied. And mm. I think this is a great example of bringing some science into a workplace that many people wouldn't think of as a workplace. Yeah. You know, performing artists have a very different experience of work, both duration of the life mm. of the career, but also different pressures, mm. uh, very different environment physically. Yeah. yeah, really interesting. And some of them have quite, quite rigid routines mm. and, and, and ways they develop themselves physically. Yeah. And that's the way it happens. That, it's a tough old gig being a dancer. The, the, the punishing demands on the body mm. are phenomenal. That's why I left it at an early age. I'd heard. I, I didn't want to mention it. I thought it might be too raw. But um. <laughs> Again, glad this is not a video podcast. But, but you're wearing that uh, tutu. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, how did the concepts uh, that make up psychological flexibility, these, these ideas, these concepts, these skills, how did they go down with, with dancers or former dancers? Mm. That's that's a really good question. I, I see my my mission, my job, you could even say my purpose, is to make this science accessible to different populations mm. and really understanding their context. So I think this is why me and Jamie working together 
works well because I can be ask the naive and curious questions, mm. whereas she can bring her own experience, which may not be the same experience as the other dancers in the room. Yeah. But we've got that nice blend, so we can we can design ways in which we think we can bring to life what what values are or what we mean by developing a different relationship with the contents of your mind. We can think of ways to bring that to life yeah. using, say, metaphor or, or techniques and, and interventions. But, but it's, it's really respecting the environment and the culture in which we're going into and hopefully understanding that a little bit before we arrive. And so have you ever had pushback you know, where people would see this as a corporate intervention and we are, you know, artistic professionals. Ever encountered anything like that? With the ballet companies, no. I think, I think because of the, the pairing of me and a former principal. Fantastic. I mean, you don't, you don't mess with a principal, I don't think. <laughs> and she's, she's, the, the beautiful thing is, I, I, I can talk about psychology, she can talk about psychology too, obviously, but she's, some people, for some of those students or younger dancers in the room, Jamie was on their bedroom wall wow. as, this is who I want to be. Mm. So that's pretty mind-blowing, really. Yeah, that makes a big difference. I don't difference. think I was on anyone's wall, to no, be absolutely know. frank. You never know. <laughs> no one's got in touch. So. I'm sure you're on a few blue plaques. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So this this notion of context is really key, right? Yeah. And so making things work within that context yeah. and relevant to those people. Something I really like about this whole, yeah. this whole science is the use of metaphor, use of imagery to yeah. make it land mm. with whomever you're speaking with. And, and we also ask them for feedback. We say, we're trying a different way of presenting this to you. Let's be upfront mm. because we think this will land with you. So we want you to tell us. And we find they're really engaged. Yeah. There's a, there's a real thirst and a, and a seriousness and an intellectual curiosity mm. that they bring to the table, which is quite humbling. And how is it framed? Uh, is this you know, introduced as a well-being initiative. Mm. Yeah, is that, that's how people we hear about it. We talk about it as well-being and skills, skills, for, skills for work and beyond type mm. thing. And sometimes we might even talk about resilience. Mm-hmm. But I'm finding, I'm finding over the last year or so that resilience is becoming much less popular as a word. Ah, it's interesting. Partic- yeah. Particularly in the NHS. The NHS is seeing resilience as well. So you're going to give me some skills, so you can get. I've got fewer colleagues, I'm getting no new pay. Mm. The demands are increasing, but you're going to make me more resilient, so I can do more. Mm. Yeah. So it's got quite negative connotations in the NHS. Yeah, and, and it can in other environments as well. Yeah. You know, the you need to be resilient to work here. Mm. Why? Yeah. <laughs> this is such a horrible place. Yeah. You know, I, I know we've had this discussion on the podcast before um, with a few people. But, yeah, if you frame resilience as a must-have, mm. it raises questions about the environment that mm. you find yourself in or support yeah. or managers or whatever whatever that might be. What's the most interesting or puzzling response you've had when introducing these skills? I think it's possibly not with ballet companies. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably with other audiences, say, 
I worked on a project with teachers and there's this yearning or this real focus on, I want to understand this with my mind. I want to understand this cognitively. Mm -hmm. And as you know, it's more of an experiential way of developing these skills. Mm. And if you, if you get too cognitive, you can find yourself as the facilitator getting drawn into that and feeling almost the need to justify it. Yeah. And, it's, and it's a way to, how can, we, how can we perhaps give people the, the reassurance that this, is really, this has a really strong evidence base behind it and building that trust so you allow me to take you, me or others, to take you on this journey with an experience, with an experiential hat on, rather than, oh, is this a bit like... Yeah, so you avoid that intellectual duel. I try to, but but I do find sometimes I can get drawn into it. Mm. Particularly in the earlier days, I felt the need to defend it. Mm. And now I can just... It's it's not avoiding it, but it's uh, it's drawing people back to the experiential. To try it, not to debate it. Yeah. Yeah. What I prefer is if, if we really had a go at this together and see what you notice about anything yeah. around these techniques. Because we could we could turn this into a kind of lecture or a debate, but I don't think that's going to help us develop these skills or for me to share them with you. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's possibly, possibly one of the dif- more difficult things. Mm. And switching roles, mm. what is it you find that, people on the other end of this training, what's the one thing that they find most difficult to grasp, do you think? Difficult to grasp. I think, I think values can sometimes take a while to land. Mm. But I think once, so maybe not answering your question, but I think sometimes people, I think or quite a lot of people in organisations are feeling a values weary. Yeah. Because they see it as this, faded poster on the wall that's kind of curling at the edges, maybe not quite straight. And it fills them with sort of, they can ridicule it, going, oh, these are the values of my organisation, but no one lives by them. You wouldn't know them. Mm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. A bit of you don't see it in people's behaviour, so why the hell should I bother? So, so the V word can have quite a lot of negative connotations. So I'm really persuading people to claim them back and, almost feel like gut instinct as to what what does have purpose for you mm. and try the, the the freedom to try it out some people really want to be some real clear guidance on what their values are i don't think yeah. we can provide that it's for the individual but we can facilitate that yeah so i think sometimes that values discussion can take a while to to get across because i think we all have values from our our parents our upbringing, our schooling, contact with religion. And that can all influence the way we are. And once we realize that actually there's, there's these goodies to be had about what has real personal meaning for me. Yeah. And I think putting people in touch with that, it can be quite scary to think about that. It is, especially when you realize you've not been living those values. Exactly. That's really uncomfortable. It, it can be quite... Uh, You've probably seen this, but when you're exploring values, you can get quite a different set of reactions. We tend to do something we call a values card sort, where we Mm -hmm. give people a pack of like 60 values cards. And 
get them to sort them through and just see which ones leap out at them. And that's a difficult thing to do anyway. Mm. But then some people will say, do you want the values of who I think I am or who I want to be? And I can see you're smiling. That's, mm. that's really familiar, isn't it? Mm. And you're saying, yes. <laughs> that's my response to that. Just just play with these and get some playful education into this. Mm. And But that, that moment when you get it down to, say, five or six, and you think, some people can think, oh, this is quite invigorating. I'm reconnecting with something. Other people can take the view of, oh, gosh, this is really important to me, and it has no bearing on how I behave in the real world. Mm. So there's a real rain and there's all the responses in between that spectrum yeah it i mean it's it's quite a fundamental isn't it Mm. asking people what matters most Mm. how do you want to be in the world Mm. rather than what do you want to be what job Mm. do you want where do you want to live this is what kind of human do you want to be and and imagine if if we started talking about this stuff in school Mm. rather than you just made me think of that who do you want to be yeah and it, it's an or, interesting... Or even what, sorry, not who yeah. do you want to be, what do you want exactly, to be? Exactly, exactly, because they're very different things. Because mm. you can apply your values in many and varied ways mm. in, in lots of different contexts, almost independent of what you're doing, yeah. you know, professionally. Mm. And what I love about the training we deliver, and I think this helps it land, is we say we're not just talking about you at work, we're yeah. talking about you as a whole human being. So we'll, in, in the training, we'll typically look at values in relationships, Mm-hmm. values in um, leisure time, values in your own health. Yeah. And people, just giving people a little segment of time can be tri- quite transformative, I think. Absolutely. There's, I found, in, mm. in my experience, it's, for, it's a reflection. Mm. It's, a, it's a time out from the pressure of the everyday, mm. and it's some self-focus for a change. And as you say, people react to that in different ways. But there's a, I wouldn't say a mistake, but sometimes a misconception that I have values at work and then I have a completely different set of values mm. outside of work, rather than sometimes the way I would explain it is, no, you've got values, and some are easier to mm. act on in work, and some are much easier mm. to put into practice outside of work depending on what your job is. I love, I love the way you describe that. You know, rather than you need to do this activity twice or three times to find these different sets of values that you will apply yeah. in very, you know, almost like there's a big wall between those. Mm. And if one of your values is compassion, you'll have opportunities to apply that mm. virtually everywhere you encounter yeah. other life. But at the same time, if it's appreciation of art or beauty, mm. yeah, your work environment might make that difficult. You know, depending, mm, yeah. but not impossible. And so you might live that more easily outside of work. And, but there might be a small way you could find to express it in, in a workplace. A symbolic way, even. Yeah. You know, not, not, not necessarily being artistic, but actively seeking out the less ugly parts <laughs> of your environment. Yeah, or just yeah. noticing that that succulent is enormously beautiful or something. You Thank know. you. Thank you. I do appreciate the... Yeah. The noticing of my my office plants, but it you know the the values piece you know reconnecting people with what's mm. meaningful, what's important to them, what really matters can be a little bit unsettling, but as you say, it can be very invigorating. Yeah. It can be exciting for people. And then what? I got to do something yeah, with it. Yeah, it's all right sorting these cards with a word, an abstract word on, but then how do you translate that into behavior? How do you take people? 
on that journey? We, we take it slowly. Mm. We take it slowly. So we typically do a curve sort and, and try to maintain the playfulness. And maybe just ask them to then choose one value from a, from a smaller group. Mm-hmm. So we'd ask people to look at that value and think about over the last few days, what have they done to move towards that value? How we, we start to develop this language in the training, moving towards a value mm-hmm. or express that value in over the last few days. And then also look forward. Is there any way coming over the next few days that you could express this? People find that quite difficult. I find that quite difficult. Mm-hmm. But it's just an introduction to, to, to looking through this lens of a value. And what we find is when people come back the next session is quite often, because we encourage people to practice between sessions, but quite often they'll come into the second session and go, I haven't done my homework. <laughs> it's like, what homework? Yeah. We were talking about taking these skills out into life. And what do you hear? Homework. Yeah. And people quite often say, I haven't done it. And then once they have start having a conversation with their neighbor, they'll start to think, oh, maybe. I have. When I did that, looking through the lens of this value, I was bringing it to life. Mm. So it's kind of that reconnection. And sometimes with groups, teachers, for example, Sometimes when I was working with groups of teachers, and they were intact teams, which is an interesting dynamic, mm. but sometimes there'd be a, a real reconnection with why the hell did I get into this profession in the first place? Mm. And it's quite a privilege to be there when that happens, I think, mm. because you can see the, the whole, any sort of the bureaucracy, the marking, the targets, the statistics, the management perhaps even the parents, then getting down to that, what gives them purpose. Really powerful stuff. That's lovely. It's, yeah. it's, it's really nice. And yeah, yeah I, I hear you about the homework. Yes, people yes. Can sometimes view this as, you know, tasks that have been mm. given them rather than yeah. things they can try yeah. for themselves to bring it to life yeah. a little bit. And it's through doing, mm. not just listening to someone in a room. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we encounter busyness, right? So people are busy yeah. and they're hectic and they've got a lot on. And maybe the last thing they want to do is sit down at the end of the day and think yeah. about values. That reconnecting with what they're already doing mm. can be a nice way of approaching yeah. that. And, and, and we create it so you can't really fail. Even if you noticed you did nothing. You noticed. You've noticed something. Yeah. You've woken up from from that autopilot or that flow of life. So, so it's a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've been um, uh, running, facilitating, presenting your own podcast. How would you describe it? Um, delivering. Delivering. Entertaining. Sounds a, sounds a bit serious, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I have been. What do, I, what do you do? Recording, presenting. Let's, let's land on presenting. Presenting yeah. for how long now? Gosh, I started it in. I should know this, shouldn't I? March 2018, I think. Okay. So we're recording this in October 2019. So yeah. there's very few episodes. Yeah. 50. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah. How have you found it, taking this stuff and talking about it to an audience whom you can't see and you don't know what they know? Do you know what? I, I, the reason I did it, I was doing a lecture at, at City University and I was saying to them, why aren't you out there? I want you to get out there and be on the news. 
Because when companies fail, when enormous conglomerates collapse, there's never an interview with an organizational psychologist going, hey, I think I might know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to get out there and bang the drum. And one of them asked me, what are you doing to bang the drum? And I was like, oh, man. Mm -hmm. Awkward. Yeah, I was like, touche. So that weekend I recorded, and I didn't even know what to call it then. I think I called it an audio blog. Right, okay. Because I thought, this is a one-off. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the medium. I really enjoyed the, the creativity, mm. trying to make it accessible, trying to be fun about it too, because mm. I think for me what makes it accessible to people is making it fun. Yes, definitely. I, I introduced and, your podcast yeah. to someone the other week, and they know this podcast, so I mm. said, you like it, because unlike this, it's good fun. You, know, you really, oh, no, but you, you really do look at things from from a different angle, yeah. and and you treat them with seriousness, but in a light way. Yeah, and and Guy Meadows, the sleep school legend, described mm-hmm. it as playful education. Nice, and I really like that. I'm nabbing that badge, but yeah. um, so so it's something that just grew. I really enjoyed doing it. I thought, oh, I'll put this out there, mm-hmm. and then it developed a bit of a following. So. Mm-hmm. I do feel that sort of responsibility. If I don't post uh, an episode every week, I think, what's going to happen to my stats? Or (laughs) will my P-supers out there be traumatized? And then I think, actually, wind your neck in a bit. (laughs) And I think um, it will be when it is. And and you know it takes takes a long time to... Well, for me, it takes a long time to come up with an idea, mm. develop it, record it. I do my own editing and stuff yeah. like that. So you, you often do it by yourself. Now, you've had some great interviews. Yes, there, but yeah. you're often by yourself. Yeah. That's, that's tough too, right? There's, there's an element of the vulnerability about that mm. because there are some odd people out there. And touch wood, I haven't been trolled. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit. Don't want to go into that, but um, not much. Yeah. And I think it's something, hopefully it's something people recognize I'm doing out of the... the, the uh, passion? Passion. I, I don't really like the passion word, but I, I really enjoy sharing this stuff with people, yeah. and I really want to reach a wider audience. Yeah. So that's what drives me. And sometimes I'll have an idea during the week and I think, that's it. And I think I've got it for this week. I think Mm. I've got a new idea. But I do like to bring, I sometimes sing. I know. I've heard. And you sometimes do impressions. Yes, yes, yes. I've only got one impression. And you know know I I enjoy it so much. But um, we'll maybe keep that for later. Or you could, you know, direct people to the episode yeah. where you shared it. That's when I'll yeah. do. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, I will reference it for you. But I think, <laughs> I think seriously, I think if I can, if I can act like a bit of a, a knob to get a message across, I'm all over that. Mm. I mean, th- these things work best when they're human mm. and they're easy to get your head around mm. and they're presented in a way that says it's shared humanity experience yes. rather than yeah. listen to me now as I, I tell you what your life is like. And I think that's very consistent with the whole 
developing psychological flexibility, that approach, there's mm. this element of self-disclosure, and that causes me concern mm. sometimes. Mm. Am I sharing too much? Will people just think I just love talking about myself? But I am sharing for a purpose. Illustrative to, to illustrate yeah. that shared humanity, hopefully. Yeah. Unless no one else recognizes what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think they do because they keep listening, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna link back uh, to to your podcast. I really oh, like you. it. No, not at all. I'd, I'd advise everyone who listens to this they should listen to that as well. Um, it's very much focused on this area yeah. of acts of acceptance and commitment yeah. training. I guess you could yeah. finish it with that and and its application in the real world, which is why this uh, I think lands so well. It's about mm. just life. Yeah, and I try yeah. to focus it for people at work, mm. but then I always say for people at work and beyond. Yeah. Because I don't think I've said the name yet properly. I'm, I'm a rubbish marketer. People, people Soup, yeah, listeners. People Soup. Um, Available on all good platforms and apps, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> There's so many apps out there for podcasts. And I keep finding new ones and going, oh, am I on it? And I am. Yeah. Like some miracle of... I don't know how that RSS works. RSS feed or something. I'm not really sure. You've you've uh, you've gone beyond my technical capability there, but you sound competent. So that's good. Hey. yeah. You sound hey. like you know what you're talking about. So what I'd like to to wrap up with, yeah. and we need to do this again because I think we could we could go on for quite some time. But I'd like to challenge you to, to share with the listeners um, one thing you really wish everyone knew about psychological flexibility. Mm. Can I illustrate it using an example? Even better. Or maybe examples, is that cheating? I'll leave it up to you. Um, let me, it's, there's, two, there's two moments really stick in my mind. And quite often we do this training over three or four sessions. And the first session is introducing people to these skills to develop, mm. these components or processes of psychological flexibility. And... We've spoken about values. Mm. There is also looking at how we relate to the content of our minds. Mm-hmm. And then there's, then there's actually translating those values into action, how we show up in the world. And just to give a bit of, a bit of context, and it was one group of people I was working with. And one guy came back the next week and had chosen, in the first week, he'd chosen the value of, of adventure. And for him, adventure was something he used to do as a kid. He used to go out and camp on the moors near where he lived. He was now in a different stage of life. He had a girlfriend and a, and a child. And he thought, oh, there's no way a girlfriend will be happy with that. But he actually went away and had the conversation. And she said, go for it, mate. Knock yourself out. He spoke to his son, who said, oh, can I come? And during that week, he'd actually put some of his possessions on eBay to sell so he could go and buy camping equipment. Boom. Wow. That gives me goosebumps still. Mm. That, this, is, this, is, this is psychological flexibility in action. It's thinking what matters to me, what small steps can I take. Mm. Those conversations with, with his girlfriend, he was probably bricking it. Mm. No, he did say, he was like, she's going to say no, but mm. I'll give it a go. And so it's, it's moving towards something that's important to using that value as, as the guide yeah. and, and that content of your mind saying, oh, she's going to say don't be selfish or 
etc., etc. Yeah, I know how this is going to play out. In this yeah. instance, it didn't happen. And I guess another example, let me just... So it was around a similar time, actually. It was a, a lady with children, and she chose this value of patience. And she couldn't wait to tell me this when she came in the next, the next session. She came in and she said, the value of patience. And she was trying to keep it uppermost in our mind over that intervening week. And she said her children were acting up and she could feel herself kind of literally raising her hand to go. (laughs) She stopped. She described that she actually stopped as her hand went up and did something completely different that for her expressed this value of patience. And her kids went, Mom, what's happened? Because they were so used to getting told off at yeah. us or getting a bit of a row. And she she's paused and did something different that was more in line with this value that was important to her. And she was kind of experimenting a bit. But that's it. Yeah. That's it. And it's from the richness of the, what people share on this training. I think that illustrates, for me, this idea of psychological flexibility more than me banging on. But they're great examples. And you yeah. know from doing this kind of work that you pick up these examples along the way and you can share them. You can talk about them and say, this doesn't require you to change your life, Mm. but it might happen. But small things Mm. to reconnect you that often make a really big Mm. difference. Yeah. That's, that's the key. It's it's the having a go. And it's, and it's that, it's exactly what you say. It's those small things Mm. that can make such an impact in life. Listen, We've come to the end of our allotted time for this episode, right. but I just want to thank you in a really big way for, for taking the time out to, to join me here this afternoon, and I've no doubt we will have another conversation. But listeners, I'm going to uh, include in the show notes uh, a link to everything you could possibly want to know. Yeah, Twitter, Insta. Everything, because he's everywhere all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But most especially to the um, People Soup podcast, which I Perfect. recommend with two thumbs up. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I've loved being here. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com slash contact. Thanks for listening.